So having that space and freedom to be in someone's, in their environment, you know, like either on the street or at their encampment or in the motel and just sit down and have a, a calm, thoughtful conversation about uh, whatever their condition is, I found that to be tremendously helpful because when people understand what they're being treated for, they're much more likely to engage in that treatment because they know why it's important. Welcome to Crossroads, the Shelters of Saratoga podcast, giving a voice to the many different challenges of homelessness in our community. Throughout our podcast series, we'll be shining a light on the perception versus the reality of homelessness in the greater Saratoga community. The issues we'll be talking about are more than a bed or a cot or a roof. The reality is that homelessness is an intricate ecosystem, including mental and physical health, public safety, food security, resource navigation, community engagement, and longer-term sustainable housing solutions. However, perhaps most important is recognizing that the majority of the challenges of the homeless in our community are invisible. We are at a crossroads where the challenges of homelessness intersect. Welcome to Crossroads, the Shelters of Saratoga podcast. I'm Dwayne Vaughn, the Executive Director of Shelters of Saratoga. In this episode, we'll be talking about how Saratoga Hospital, the Saratoga Community Health Center, and Shelters of Saratoga work together, often side-by-side, to provide access to health care for people experiencing homelessness. We'll be talking about street outreach. We'll be talking about clinical care. We'll be discussing how the social determinants of health, including income, employment, food security, and housing, and how they affect health outcomes. And we'll be talking about how important it is that we work together to treat the whole person. Joining our conversation today will be Dr. Robert Donnarumma. Did I say that pretty much right? Yes, thank you. you The second time. Mm -hmm. Who is the chief medical officer at Saratoga Hospital and former medical director of the Saratoga Hospital Emergency Department. Welcome. Thank you. And can I call you Rob? Please. Thank you. And we also have Sam Halasian, who is a physician's assistant at the Saratoga Community Health Center. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. And of course, last but not least is... Stephanie Romeo, who is the Associate Executive Director at Shelters of Saratoga. So thank you all for uh, joining us. Hi, Steph. Hi. We're here to talk about health care for the homeless in Saratoga. Our second episode of our podcast was a conversation with Tracy Kidder, the author of Rough Sleepers, and a profile of Dr. Jim O'Connell and his Boston Healthcare for the Homeless uh, project. So for this episode, we want to bring the conversation closer to home and talk about how Saratoga Hospital the Saratoga Community Health Center and Shelters of Saratoga Working Relationships takes on the challenge of healthcare for the homeless, the critical role that healthcare plays in finding a path to independence. First of all, let's talk about outreach. Um, Stephanie, could you define for us what outreach is for our listeners? Sure. I like to keep the definition of outreach short and sweet. It's meeting someone where they're at instead of asking them to come to you. Sam, I'm going to bring you in the conversation here. So how long have you been joining the team of outreach? Could you explain that a little bit for us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I, I was thinking about it earlier today, actually. It's, it's, I can't believe it's been almost two years since I first started uh, doing this kind of work. So it was one of those um, silver lining blessings from COVID, actually, from the pandemic um, through the CARES Act in 2020 uh, that some of this street outreach work got started. Um, and my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that there was a a need for a, a medical person to be sort of brought into the work that the great work that you guys had already been doing. Um, so originally, um, my uh, program director at uh, the office that I work at, um, at the Community Health Center, Kathy McNeese, she approached me and said, hey, you know, um, there's some folks doing some street outreach with the persons in our community that are experiencing homelessness. They often have questions about medical issues and aren't exactly sure uh, what to do with it. Um, would you be interested in helping in some way? And we, we're not sure what it's going to look like, but we don't have a map. Um, are you in? And I said, yes, please, absolutely. Because my uh, route into medicine was outside of the, the hospital in the beginning. Um, I was a, a paramedic in New York City for years. and. Uh, I love being uh, outside the office. <laughs> so, so when uh, they approached me with this, it, it made perfect sense. And so it's been almost two years now that I've been uh, doing this kind of work. Well, great. Well, we appreciate it. We can tell you that for sure. 
Um, you know, and I, I also wanted to talk, you know, before we kind of get to that point of talking about street medicine, that type of thing, uh, maybe Rob, you can help us out here. You know, we talk about the hospital, the healthcare system being a bit overloaded or overcome, uh, especially the emergency departments. Um, are, what are you seeing in regards to homelessness in that regard? Sure. Hospitals nationwide are um, being stressed by multiple choke points. Um, I, I think we've heard a lot about staffing, particularly nurse uh, staffing uh, nationwide, and unfortunately our region is not immune from that. Uh, capacity space is an issue as well uh, due to years of consolidation. Um, the number of inpatient beds and the number of inpatient psychiatric beds has been uh, severely decreased uh, over the last uh, several decades. Um, and COVID uh, basically helped exacerbate all of that. Uh, these things were happening long before uh, the pandemic, but um, certainly brought to a head. And so for this population, often the emergency department is their first point of medical contact or their only interaction with the medical system. Uh, one unfortunate thing I think we see is that uh, in the past, they may have had a, a poor interaction with someone in the healthcare system. And so there's a fear of interacting with the healthcare system. And we really tried in the emergency department to make it a good first experience. Um, generally, if you have that good first experience and you uh, move on further, come to the clinics, establish a primary care doctor, uh, receive routine care. Uh, the episodic care um, that you receive in the emergency department is good for emergencies. And we have staff that's uh, very well trained in taking care of that. Uh, but they're not trained in dealing with chronic medical conditions. Um, and so getting those patients referred to uh, the areas of the hospital where we do that best, like our community health center, is the key. Um, when our emergency department is overwhelmed with primary care needs, then that next patient walking with a heart attack or stroke is going to have to wait longer, frankly, uh, to be seen. Mm -hmm. You know, Stephanie, if you could chime in here on that and talk about uh, the use of the emergency room. Um, yeah, I mean, to hit Rob's point, some clients are afraid because of past experiences. Um, and I want to highlight, too, that hospitals aren't the only health care that are overwhelmed. I mean, primary care physicians' offices are overwhelmed as well. So we have people on waiting lists um, trying to get in with primary care and, and trying to find an avenue so that they can be seen quickly and not have to go to the ER. But they're waiting months and months to see a primary care physician as well, which can be difficult, um, which is where Sam has been super helpful of kind of bridging that gap. Um, we also have some individuals that go to the ER because it's sometimes a means to stay warm and they want to sit in the ER and they know that they can probably get away with sitting in the ER for quite a while before they might be noticed because they don't have a significant medical need. Um, we also have some clients who genuinely are lacking the education of understanding what is a medical crisis and what is just feeling uncomfortable, what is life-threatening, and when is it actually appropriate to go to the emergency room. Sam, Going back to uh, Saratoga Hospital and the Community Health Center, they've invested in the street outreach reach, uh, program. So the number of hours you are doing per week now are? Typically around eight hours per week. Mm -hmm. um, and this is um, in addition to just the, you know, the regular role that I play, which is, you know, primary care, family medicine, seeing patients in the office, you know, Monday through Friday, 8 to 430. Um, so when I'm not in the office, I'm going out. Uh, initially, when I was first doing this, it was uh, with you know folks like Stephanie here. Um, but it, very quickly, I found myself um, comfortable in in the community and um, uh, just going off sort of on my own. <laughs> yep. And uh, you know, interacting with folks and meeting new people and just seeing what their needs are and building those relationships and um, you know, really what's what's been so. Uh, I think helpful and what, what what's making it work in my mind is the the team uh, the team approach so the fact that there's so many different um, skilled people from so many organizations working together and communicating together um, that's what allows us to be uh, successful um, you know we were able to accomplish so much more that way than we would if we were just 
sitting in our office waiting for people to show up, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think your new residency program has added to that team approach as well. I mean, they've come to the shelter. They've actually interviewed um, individuals experiencing homelessness. They've talked about the barriers. They have a really great understanding of of what has made people uncomfortable in the past, um, of you know, how they can help, what, what we're lacking, where the gaps are in services. Um, Rob, do you think you can talk more about your resident pro- residency program? Yeah, Saratoga Hospital is very excited about this uh, program. So this is the first year uh, that we will be running graduate medical education sponsored by Saratoga Hospital um, in affiliation with our academic uh, partner, Albany Medical Center. Um, and really our goal is to uh, have these new physicians, these physician learners, be part of our community from day one. Um, so that, of course, includes working in our emergency department, work on the inpatient units, but working in places like our community health center and in our community at large. Uh, the goal is to bridge that gap between the hospital and the health home. Uh, so uh, undoctored patients that are coming through the emergency department will be on that teaching service being seen by the resident who will then pick them up as their uh, patient in their continuity clinics, uh, either here in Saratoga or uh, up in Glens Falls at the new health center. Um, and so from the patient experience, it's seamless. Uh, from door in to uh, chronic care, uh, they're seeing the same doctor, the resident physician. Not to, you know, to confuse, we also have a health home program, right? So Stephanie, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, sure. We have a health home program with uh, currently three care managers. The focus for health home program is really to shift the mindset of medical services back to preventative um, and not always reactionary because that's kind of where thing, the direction things have gone in. Um, so we pay close attention to the social determinants of health. Um, when you're not feeling good on the inside, it impacts all of, all of those social determinants of health. Um, so when, when we meet with someone, we're identifying what medical needs do they currently have, but also what medical needs might they have in the future, um, and connecting them with those resources before it gets to the point of being a crisis. Great. Rob, you know, we were really excited that, uh, that the Saratoga Hospital community embraced this program. Um, when you first heard about this, what was your reaction? I, I think, you know, there's a clear acknowledgement that um, the best medicine in the world uh, doesn't help if you don't treat these social determinants of health. In fact, that's now part of our routine screening process for every patient that's admitted to the hospital. Uh, as we go through these social determinants of health, and if something's flagged in that screening, we provide the resources for them, whether it's social work or care management. Um, and try to bridge that to the community. Um, echoing on Sam's multidisciplinary approach, we've embedded those resources now within the emergency department. Um, so we have care managers, um, substance abuse counselors, and social workers, brand new this year, embedded within our emergency department. One thing that we did here not too long ago, I think it was maybe three weeks ago, where we were, Stephanie and I were invited to come to the hospital and speak to staff, and I was uh, pleasantly surprised when I got there and there was a full room of probably 30 or 40 people and then there was a screen up where there was another you know I don't know how many people that were on a zoom call really wanting to, to, to know exactly what SOS is about and what we're doing and what we're seeing and that to me showed an investment you know that Saratoga Hospital is more than willing to put in and was really helpful I think uh, you know on, on our side for sure to know that we have a partner in this and I think it helped, you know, move through some of those myths and, 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 and things that we are running into and have that really good collaboration. So I want to thank you for that. Well, Stephanie, I want to go back to your answer about outreach. You, you it said we want to meet people where they're at. Can you define that a little bit better for our listeners? Uh, sure. It's in all the pockets of the community where, you know, the, anyone experiencing homelessness who might be invisible could be in encampments, in the woods. Uh, sitting on a park bench uh, in the at a little table inside of a gas station or a Stewart's, um, in the motels, anywhere where you might not know that someone was experiencing homelessness. And Sam, I think you can probably elaborate. Yeah, I was shocked at all the little pockets that existed. Um, and just when I think that I, I know all the, the usual spots where I can find folks, um, I will meet someone new and build a relationship with them and then they'll show me where they're staying at and I would think oh my gosh I would never even have thought this tiny little strip of you know a couple trees or bushes just hidden very well um, 
within the community. But how far are you going out, Sam, when you uh, do your outreach? So I, I stay within the county, and uh, and beyond that, I really mostly stay within Saratoga Springs. But um, I will go to, um, there's an encampment near the train station that I will routinely go to that was more heavily populated two years ago, but there's still folks there now. And um I'll go over to the other side of town to uh, Wilton. There's actually a, a couple areas that are heavily wooded there, um, where there's been quite a few encampments. Um, you know that are that I've visited folks at. Um, but yeah, there's really not a, a limit necessarily to where I'll go. Sometimes I'll get a, a text message or phone call from someone from the outreach team that I work with who will say, "Hey, you know, I've got a." A client that I've been working with really well, he's staying at so-and-so motel or, or he's at this place in the woods, let me drop you a pin, you know, and I'm worried about him because he got out of the hospital a week ago and he hasn't followed up and, you know, it'll, it could be anything, right? And, um, and I will go and check on him, see how they're doing and see what their needs are. And um, because I, I, you know, came from that background of field medicine, uh, I have, you know, my little go bag with me and uh, I can, we can do quite a lot in the field. You know, I'm, I was very grateful just a couple weeks ago, um, right here in Saratoga Springs, there was um, a pretty large medical conference for uh, physician assistants in New York. Um, their annual CME conference was. I, I need to plug that Sam is New York State's <laughs> physician assistant of the year award really? recipient. That is correct. Oh, thank, you. Awesome. thank you. Thank you very much, doctor. I appreciate that. We're very uh, proud of you, Sam. Yes, it's it's a huge honor to uh, to have even been um, considered for that. But I, I did I did receive that a couple of weeks ago. But I also at the at the conference was I had the the pleasure of speaking about this outreach work. So it was a CME conference. So you know I got to speak for an hour and get really kind of in depth about the work that we do um, and how do we do it and the social determinants and all of these things. And it really felt like a it was like a bragging con. You know I got to brag about all these <laughs> these folks that I work with like Stephanie and Dwayne and you know and um it was it it really I could see folks eyes lighting up in in the in the crowd as they were listening to it because you know oftentimes the the conferences we go to can be a little a little drab some of the material right and depending on the presenter and how they are right and um whenever I speak about outreach I I, I get very excited and uh I, I love to to talk about the the work that we do and how unique it is and um I even as a a little, you know, uh, visual, I, I brought in the bag, you know, with all the stuff to show people what we can do out in the field. You know, if I'm checking up on someone who is experiencing some chronic illnesses that we need to manage, you know, I can bring assessment equipment, uh, I can bring, uh, medications. Um, if they're in our system, which is, which is really helpful. If they've been even been to the ER once they're in our EMR, I can send medicines just right from my phone, you know? Um, so we're able to sort of get things done. Um, in a way that is incredibly efficient and leads to better outcomes uh, for the patient, you know, so I can, I can order blood work, I can order x-rays and that way they can go do it in a time that's convenient, you know, for example, with, you know, by getting a ride with one of their case managers, um, you know, to get it done as opposed to dropping into the ER unexpectedly and saying, I need X, Y, and Z. And now it's all this, all this, you know, more volume, you know, that doesn't need to be happening as an ER patient. You talked about your go bag. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, we've heard the words acute and chronic a couple times here. Could yes. you kind of tell us what you're seeing? Acute, acute versus chronic? Or? Yes. So some, some examples of uh, acute conditions would be uh, infections, typically superficial skin infections. Um, you know, in the, in the summertime when folks are living out in encampments in the woods, they have a, a whole variety of... Um, typically environmental uh, exposure-related conditions. So we see things from tick bites to cellulitis, which is just a, a superficial infection uh, under the skin, to uh, very severe infections sometimes. A lot of our patients, um, as the, the doctor here knows, uh, suffer from diabetes, and that can lead to difficult wound healing. So if we have folks that are living in encampments in the woods, maybe they don't have good footwear, um, you know, they have infections that develop in their feet and then they go unnoticed because another part of diabetes is that you'll lose sensation in your feet. So you won't even feel that you have an ulcer on the bottom of your foot. So when I'm examining someone uh, out in the field, I can look at their feet and say, hey, do we have something that we need to treat here? 
um, and I have the supplies to do it. So I'm, I have the wound management supplies. We can bring them antibiotics if we need to. And this is all, you know, even for acute conditions, these are things that we can really handle outside of the ER, but folks don't know what to do. So they go to the ER, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, if these are things that we can manage, our our goal is to reduce that volume, you know, that they're dealing with. So there's a lot of things that we can do out in the field um, that we do. I think it's also important that um, when those patients need the emergency department, they've already been seen uh, by Sam. So we get that call, we get the heads up, we know what's been tried, what has worked, what hasn't worked. And you know, having that background before the patient arrives is uh, very important for their uh, treatment course. Rob, you had talked, you know, I heard you mention earlier in the podcast where you talked about trust and relationships. And that, I think, kind of segues really good for this point here. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, you know, a, a lot of these at-risk patients that we see every day uh, s- sort of think of the ED docs as their primary care doc sometimes. Uh, I, I have a you know few funny stories walking downtown with folks coming out to me saying, hey, doc, you know, and uh, my son's asking, you know him? Like, yeah, yeah, we see him once a day, you know. <laughs> um, but um, building that trust is how we move them along in that healthcare system, right? Um, we want to be there for that episodic care, but what we really want is to uh, get them into our medical home model. Um, you know, and, and echoing on Sam's point, it's, sometimes it's about bringing that first door of entry to them. Um, they may be uncomfortable walking to the clinic. Uh, they may be uncomfortable with the clothes that they're wearing or their, or their uh, um, transportation, for example. Um, so getting them into that um, first medical contact, as we say, is, is so important. Um, there's a lot of models that are bringing primary care mobile to the patients, uh, including paramedic-based models that are uh, doing primary care in rural areas or uh, inner city areas. Um, so when you build that trust, right, it's, it's, it's the first step to moving someone along towards health maintenance. Um, and that applies to anyone, any patient, right? When you trust your doctor, uh, when you trust your clinician, uh, you're more likely to be compliant with routine medical care. And that prevents the chronic medical conditions and the acute exacerbations. We are seeing an uptick you know, we have been steadily over the years of, of homelessness, and, and I know you're seeing it in the hospitals too. Um, do you find that uh, sometimes that your staff needs additional support in, in any way when it comes to uh, addressing the homelessness issues in the hospital? Certainly something that's been recognized recently, and it's uh, a big drive for why we've added additional resources uh, to the emergency department specifically. Um, having an uh, embedded, dedicated social worker who has experience working with these populations uh, that will be there uh, five days a week, you know, eight to ten hours a day. Um, often, uh, these patients have multiple uh, comorbidities, multiple medical problems at once, and often substance abuse history and psychiatric history as well. And so it's important to treat the whole person, uh, all of those issues, including their uh, social determinants of health. I think there's some uh, public uh, perception out there that, um, you know, why doesn't the hospital just admit every person that comes in and, um, you know, keep them for two weeks and sort everything out and, you and know, go ahead and, and they'll fix, be fixed and, and they'll be fixed be and make every problem go away. And, um, you know, acute care hospitals are good at treating medical conditions, right? So the hospital exists and we're experts at treating medical conditions. Um, that's not the same thing as, uh, treating all these other social determinants of health. Of course, that's part of healthcare. And of course we integrate that into our model of care. Um, but the hospital alone can't fix all these problems. Uh, we need our community partners. We need our support to be able to do that. Um, Sam? Makes perfect sense. You know, so, you know, I li- and I like that you mentioned, um, you know, having expertise and, and skill in a particular lane, right? So I, I often talk about that when I talk about that, that team that we have for our street outreach because um, there are things that, other folks are really, really good at that. I'm not, you know, and I, and I, for me, it's been such a learning experience to see how much goes into making a person whole that I don't normally, that I didn't think about before I was doing this kind of work, but thing, things that are just very, that I take for granted, right? Um, you know, what is a person doing with their time? 
what is their social life? Do they have friends and support? Um, how do they get places, right? Transportation is so important. And, you know, it's, it's easy as the medical person to say, well, this person is on a, a blood thinner, right? And he needs to get his blood checked three times a week because that's the medicine. This is a specific patient that I'm talking about, you know, who has been struggling. Say, oh, because of, you know, and we know that because I'm, I'm pointing to the doctor here because, you know, we learned this and we trained on this and we know if a patient is taking this medicine, he has to be monitored and we check his levels. But if the, if the person doesn't have a vehicle and the, it's difficult for them to walk, for them to get to from the motel where they're staying temporarily to a place where they can have their blood drawn three times a week, it's a five hour ordeal. Mm -hmm. You know, how are they getting on the bus on and off the bus? How are they affording the, the, the ride? You know, so these are things that we don't often think about if a, if a person is looked at within the vacuum of, uh, them being a, a patient in medicine, right? Unfor yeah, and unfortunately yeah. that um, theme of non-compliance is often shifted to blame the patient, right? Right, yeah. Not blame the system, not yep. blame the circumstances, but blame the patient. And of course, we know that doesn't lead to good outcomes. Right, and we see it often with our, our patients who struggle with these chronic conditions like diabetes, where you'll see all over the chart, oh, this, this person is non-compliant, non-compliant. Well, you know, they're, sometimes they're just not adherent with these medicines because they can't afford them. You know, I was shocked when I started working very closely with some of our um, uh, certified diabetes educators and our registered dietitians in our office because we have a you know a comprehensive team there to see how many folks you know cannot afford their medicines. It's just it's really baffling. You know, I just wanted to touch um, base on the medicine component. So um, this past fall, Shadrick Hospital uh, started their community pharmacy. Um, based out of the hospital itself. Um, but one of the innovative programs we've started is a med-to-bed program. Uh, so uh, we, our pharmacists will fill those prescriptions uh, from the emergency department or from the inpatient unit and uh, literally bring those uh, medications to the patient before they leave uh, the hospital um, and ensure that they have refills and uh, uh, arrangements to receive those medications long-term. And that's so important, you know. I so want to shift back, too, to, you know, sometimes non-compliance of treatment of chronic conditions is, is yes, blame to the patient um, for a million of different barriers. Maybe they didn't have transportation, maybe no cell phone, didn't know about the appointment, things like that. But it's also sometimes, again, the lack of education. A large portion of this population has COPD and emphysema and diabetes, and they don't always take it seriously because everyone around them has the same thing and they might not be taking it seriously. And so it's, well, if we all have this and we're all okay, then do we really need to treat it in as, as serious as everyone's making it seem like it is? Um, and I just think sometimes it comes down to a, a lack of education. Um, there's a million other things making their day-to-day -day life feel extremely difficult, and they don't always attribute it to the medical conditions, but to all of those social determinants of health, to all the other uh, the other barriers they face every single day. Um, I mean, I challenge any of the listeners to think about how healthy would you feel if you're waking up and you don't know when your next meal is going to be, or when you, you don't know what your next meal is going to be? Is it going to be filled with starches because it's cheap and easy? Um, how healthy would you feel if you're struggling with depression and you are struggling just to wake up and survive and then you're asked to follow through with all these other things? Um, I just think uh, there's there's a lot more that goes into it than just non-compliance and people don't want the help. I think they do and sometimes it's a lack of education and there's a lot of things in their way. Sure. I, agree. I think you raise a really interesting point about something that we talk about, with, which is health literacy, right? So, mm. you know, oftentimes uh, in the office, someone will come in and we have, as soon as you sit, as soon as you open the door into the room, the timer starts, right? And you only have so much time with the patient to get through so many things that you want to talk about. And this is where the, the street outreach component comes in, because some folks don't have the same level of health literacy meaning, you know, how do we talk about our health overall? Do we understand what's our our fund of knowledge when it comes to healthcare? Especially folks that are experiencing homelessness may not have that fund of knowledge to, to, to talk about health issues. And in the limited space of an office visit, it can be difficult to really unpack all of those concepts. So one thing that I find is when I'm doing the outreach work, 
I don't have that timer going and I can really just take my time and speak to folks about things that maybe no one ever explained to them. Maybe their their doctor they had just told them, hey, you have X, Y, and Z, um, and just sort of maybe assumed that they understood what that means, um, but they have been going this whole time not knowing it. So having that space and freedom to be in someone's, in their environment, you know, like either on the street or at their encampment or in the motel, and just sit down and have a, a calm, thoughtful conversation about, uh, whatever their condition is, I've found that to be tremendously helpful because when people understand what they're being treated for, they're much more likely to engage in that treatment because they know why it's important. We talked about barriers there, which there are so many, and maybe this is the first opportunity somebody has the ability to prioritize their health because, what, well, like Stephanie was saying, they're thinking about, where am I going to sleep tonight? Where's my next meal coming from? I want to I want to talk a little bit about the perception of uh, mental health and substance abuse. It's an important topic I, for for this population. Um, I, I think there's often an assumption that um, uh, be, their homelessness is caused because of some deficiency in character or some uh, underlying mental health issue or substance abuse, um, and that's just completely wrong. Uh, just like our general population, um, there are some patients that suffer from substance abuse and mental health issues, and there are some that don't. Um, This population is no different than the folks that we see and work with every single day. Um, It's important uh, that this population is treated for all of those things at at the same time. Um, To only treat one aspect of their health care or their life um, is just going to lead to uh, poor success in other areas. I want to reiterate what Rob is saying, um, because I think sometimes there's this ideology that mental health and substance use go hand in hand with homelessness, but in fact there are people who are housed and have substance use and mental health and vice versa. Um, and having mental health and, and potentially substance use certainly make being homeless or experiencing homelessness harder. Okay. Um, and it makes it harder to access care and, and to pay attention to care, but they don't go hand in hand. It's not synonymous. And there are plenty of people who are experiencing homelessness who have neither. That's correct. We're going to take a short break and be back in about a minute. We're back. Next, we'll be talking about how important it is for Saratoga Hospital and Shelters of Saratoga to work together as community partners because no single organization can do it alone. Rob, maybe you could explain to me what you, the changes you've seen maybe through your career when, you know, homelessness and, and, and health care. So, you know, certainly in, in, in more modern economic uh, conditions. Uh, I think we are seeing an increase in um, homelessness, uh, both regionally and nationally. Um, as we know, the cost of living has just gone up astronomically uh, for, for lots of folks. Um, that is in the backdrop of uh, other issues that we've been talking about with, um, with uh, mental health illness. Um, we've seen uh, as we mentioned, decades of closure of inpatient treatment facilities and really limited outpatient resources uh, for patients to uh, connect with, whether that's counselors, psychiatrists, mental health clinics. Uh, Additionally, um, nationally, we've seen uh, increasing rates of substance abuse. And again, this is not related to homelessness, but related to many things. The uh, opioid epidemic that I'm sure folks are familiar with, um, uh, post-COVID pandemic, we are seeing increased rates of uh, alcohol use disorder and alcohol abuse in the general population. And, and of course, this homeless population is not immune from that. Mm-hmm. And in previous podcasts, we've talked about um, that homelessness is really non-discriminate when it comes to age, uh, male, female, anything like that. So we are seeing, if I'm correct, Stephanie, that we are seeing more people starting to, you know, uh, we have higher age people, people needing assisted living, things like that. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, we are seeing a huge increase in clients who need nursing home or assisted living level of care, um, and they're facing incredible barriers to getting that assistance. And whether that might be um, because they don't have the income already turned on, like they don't have SSD or SSI turned on, they don't have the correct insurance. Um, a lot of assisting assisted living facilities are full and they don't have open beds necessarily the moment you need them, so it's hard to get a bed-to-bed transfer. Um, and then also the barrier of other housing options and other shelter options have the mindset of, well, they need a higher level of care, so we won't take them without with the 
disregard of if we won't take them and help them get to the higher level of care, they won't be able to get to the higher level of care. Um, and I think there's kind of a back and forth of they end up in the hospital, but they can't get them to the higher level of care again for the reason I've stated with the bed-to-bed -bed transfers and yeah. vice versa. Oh, so you're saying there's like a bit of a catch-22, like when it comes to... Yes. Yeah, so they like, can't go into the shelter because they have so right. many medical problems. But, well, so they end up at Code Blue because right. other locations will say they need a higher level of care. Uh, um, we can't take them here, so they end up... You know, we take most of them into Code Blue or our Walworth Street shelter um, as often as we have a bed available. Um, and there's just a lot of barriers to getting them into the appropriate level of care. And they certainly aren't appropriate for a shelter. Um, I'm not saying they are. We're just, you know, we recognize it's better than them being on the streets and needing an appropriate level of care. Right. Rob, can you talk more about what you're seeing in the hospitals? Yeah, so uh, the staffing uh, crisis has affected uh, what we call post-acute care as well as the hospitals. So that's our nursing homes, our assisted living facilities. Um, they, too, have been um, hit really hard. Uh, with uh, RN and uh, certified nurse assistant shortages. Um, unfortunately, that has resulted in some bed closures. Um, and uh, really, it's a, it's a throughput issue. So if uh, patients uh, cannot be discharged at post-acute care, um, they have extended stays in the hospital. And if they have extended stays in the hospital, that means longer wait times in the emergency department. Uh, if we can't move patients through, um, then it gets clogged up. Um, and uh, we're seeing this uh, nationwide. Uh, Sam, what? tell me some of the things you're seeing in, when you're out doing the outreach in, in, in regards to age. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, it's interesting because folks will often ask me, you know, what, what, is the, what is the most common person you will encounter with regard to either age or um, gender? And there's a huge variety of, of things that I see. And um, but the truth is there's a lot of... Uh, I would say older folks that I find myself taking care of. And that surprised me when I first started doing the work um, to see that a lot of the, the, the patients that I'm taking care of are either in their mid fifties, but sometimes even over, over 65 uh, experiencing homelessness and dealing with lots of other medical concerns. Um, a patient that came back to the area recently that, uh, that, just established at our office is 72 and, and, and she was living in a, a park, you know, and uh, it's, it's a little, it's hard to see that and to see that, you know, folks are not able to get what they need. Um, and that's difficult. And I know that that population, uh, the over 65 population is going to keep growing and getting bigger, you know, as the, as time goes on. And um, it certainly presents a lot of challenges. I think sometimes there's a, a misconception that, uh, you know, for that older population, well, if they're over 65, they must have Medicare. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I have Medicare. Um, so, of course, all their health care needs are being met. Um, do you want to speak to that, Sam? <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> I think we've all had yeah. a lovely experience with Medicare. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult, you know. Uh, government... Uh, Health insurance. I have to be careful what I say because I'm still. <laughs> we I'm need to get paid. Yeah. I am still. Yeah, yeah, and and I'm still in the military, so you know, no, extra uh, yeah, extra careful about how I talk about government-sponsored health care. Um, but yes, again, that's one of the things that shocked me when I when I started uh, doing this type of work. You know, seeing because before I came into medicine, I kind of. Like you said, I just assumed, you know, well, people get what they need because they have this this insurance in place. You know, if someone needs to go in a nursing home, why don't they just go into the nursing home? What's the problem? And it's been really eye-opening to see the the difficulty in, in accomplishing some of those tasks sometimes and, and getting folks where they need to go. It's it's not as simple as, as we would like it to be. Well, sometimes the perception of homelessness out there is somebody in their 20s or 30s or something like that and we know when we right off the bat when we opened Co blue this year one of our very first people that showed up at the door was 88 years old yeah. so we we yeah. see a, a lot of seniors at, at Co blue would you say stephanie i would i think um so far this year we've probably seen the highest amount of seniors um and we've only been open a month so it's just it's concerning um, and to Sam's point, you just assume that that population of people will get the care that they need. Um, you know, we've all been 
told since we were young, you know, take care of your elders. And we just kind of all assume as a community that that happens. And um, to see that that's not necessarily happening because of all the barriers in place, uh, it's extremely discouraging. Or I think that maybe people are thinking they must be refusing the care or refusing. uh, The assumption that they're (laughs) non-compliant. We talk about the relationships with uh, the the community health center, the hospital and shelters of Saratoga. And, uh, you know, Stephanie, you'd said in the past when we had conversations when um, this also could be preventative, right? When, uh, when Sam visits somebody. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, there's been plenty of times where we have seen someone with our outreach team in the woods and given Sam a call um, and Sam will come right out to see them or or vice versa. We have someone who may be discharged from the hospital and came to our Walworth Street shelter um, and was in need of primary care physician to follow up with. And we call over to Sam's office and he says, sure, of course, give a call and we'll get them scheduled right away. Um, so kind of skipping that wait time to be seen by a pr- primary care physician, um, which would likely have led to another ER visit, which is avoidable in most cases. Um, so it's interesting too. it. You know, it's it's a it's a dance when you're getting to know someone and building that relationship. So sometimes, you know, I will I'll go follow up with that person. And I, I don't often immediately say, here's my card, come see me, because it it's almost like there's a little bit of warming up that has to happen, Mm -hmm. right? And once they do trust me and they see that week after week there's some consistency, you know, so in that in-between time, maybe they do go back to the ER for something and then I'm able to see their name pop up on our uh, tracker and I I recognize the name. And so when the the folks in the ER are saying, do you have a primary? And they go, no, not really. I can say, oh, I saw that guy, you know. And when I see them the next day, I can say, oh, I saw that you were in the emergency department, you know. Again, I'd love to see you in the office, you know. And eventually I've had a lot of success where folks do come in. And I think at this point it's up to somewhere in the mid thirties, probably 33, 34 patients that have actually come in and, and established uh, on my panel. So yeah. in, in fact, with our latest transition of care, uh, open access policy with the community health center, that's exactly what the health center is doing is scanning for patients that have been admitted to the hospital that have had contact with the community health center and actually booking their appointment for follow-up before we even discharge the patient. It's nice. One of my favorite ways that we work together too is, um, to Sam's point saying about how we build rapport and we build relationships is when you're working with other providers who are all building their rapport and building their relationships and then we're working together is sometimes we can skip that step because maybe Sam's referred someone to me and Sam said I was a great provider and so now this person is meeting with me and and it's immediately well Sam said you're okay so you're okay in my book and and vice versa and we see that even you know with insurance representatives and and other healthcare providers it's well this person's a really great asset to the community and you're going to love them and they're going to help you and it'll be it'll work out and they'll be able to get you to where you need to go and then someone who maybe is hesitant to trust is like well so and so said you were good so I'm I'm willing to work with you. Um, and it's just a way that even any single one of us building rapport and trust um, within the population, it, it kind of helps other providers build rapport and trust. Word of mouth is huge. It is. And, and, and that's why, again, every time I talk about the, the outreach work, it goes back to relationships because, um, you know, there's one particular person I'm thinking of, I won't say since we're recording, <laughs> uh, a, a patient or client, right, who is, I think of him as pretty much like the mayor uh, of, you know, this this po- patient population. And, uh, you know, we have a great working relationship and he has never come to see me in the office, but I am his de facto PCP. But, you know, he, he lives in the woods. He doesn't like coming into the the system as he sees it and uh you know but we work really well together and he will often refer folks to me and coming from him it it carries a lot of uh clout you know so he'll and he, when i go out uh every week it's almost like a touch point to to make contact with this individual he will literally say to me Hey, by the way, there was a, a new kid that showed up, uh, you know, 1920, you know, uh, he's, he's new, he's homeless. He's, you know, he doesn't have a doctor or anything, but he's, he mentioned to me that he's really struggling because, you know, X, Y, and Z could, it could be, you know, he's, he was, um, you know, prescribed a medicine before, but now he doesn't have it. He doesn't know where to go. And, you know, and, and so I gave him your card and I go, that's great. You know, and, and I'll get refer- referrals, you know, from, um, from that relationship. Um, so it's really, 
it's 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 great when when we see that happen. So Sam, you know, you know, when you're talking about this this uh, patient, <laughs> it immediately makes me think about Tracy Kidder's book, Rough Sleepers, and uh, a character that's talked about in that in that book, Tony, mm. who um, who this exact same scenario, which are, I'm finding especially after talking to Tracy Kidder and, and reading the book and learning about Dr. O'Connell, that we're experiencing many of the exact same things that they see in, in Boston. Yeah, it's, and that book actually was brought to me um, about a year and a half ago when I first started getting into this work. It was a, a patient at the community health center of mine who had read the book and thought it was fascinating, and she saw through a local newspaper article about the work that I've been doing. And so she brought the book to me and gave it to me as oh, really? a gift. Yeah. And I saw, and I saw it and it just kind of, I, I, I know that there are folks all over the country doing really great work like this, but it was, it was neat to see it all sort of, you know, followed up on in, in a very uh, unique way in, in that book. So one of the things that we worry about and in, in shelter work, and I'm sure um, you both do too in, in the medical field is is, uh, you know, sometimes we see some really tough things. And what do we do or what do you do for self-care? Oh, no. See, you don't want to ask. So <laughs> you don't want to ask the soldier because I'm just going to break out that dark humor. And uh, <laughs> and then and then it's going to be uh, all downhill from there because because, you know, uh, I, I will say, yeah, as a. As someone who worked, you know, I got a lot of my dark stuff out early, you know, when I was working mm-hmm. as a as a paramedic, uh, you know, in a high volume system that was that was trying, you know, and there were things that I saw and things that I did that uh, are, are difficult to this day to, mm-hmm. to cope with. Um, you know, it's funny as, as healthcare providers, I think we're great at taking care of people, not sometimes not as good at taking care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I will say that, you know, for myself in particular, I'm certainly guilty of that. Um, and self-care is huge, right? Because we talk about burnout and um, it's, it's important to make sure that we're maintaining that balance where we're doing good work, right? And taking care of the folks that we want to take care of, but also taking care of ourselves. So for me personally, that comes down to setting limits, right? So I set limits and I say, okay, I'm no matter how much I'm, you know, into what I'm doing right now, whether it's, you know, uh, seeing folks in the office or finishing my notes or, you know, being out in the field, taking care of people there, I'm going to set a limit and say, I have to go home at some point, right? Mm -hmm. My family is the most important thing to me. I have to, you know, be there for my family and and take time for myself because the truth is we love what we do. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and, and, we do. I mean, we absolutely love it and that's why we do it. And so it, it can be difficult to walk away from it sometimes and say, Hey, I need to pause and, and spend some time with my family. Um, so yeah, self-care. I think that sense of purpose is more important than ever as we're seeing this healthcare worker shortage, um, that renewed sense of, you know, why do you do what you do every single day? Um, at the same time, you know, uh, I've, I'm often asked, you know, what, what's the one hobby for doctors? Do they read medical journals late into the night and, uh, you know, do research? It's like watch mindless TV, yeah. right? Just completely unplug yeah. and disconnect yourself from those realities and then wake up the next day and just get right back to it. Yeah, um, I, think, yeah. I think you need something that's not cerebral in any way. That's right. Yeah, you need to just turn off. Get outside, yeah. you know, take, a, you know, take some time off. You know, I, I, we saw a lot of... Uh, folks in healthcare working through the pandemic nonstop, really not giving themselves any time off. Um, and and uh, that's been a big encouragement this year is to take that time off that you've uh, earned uh, to unplug and then come back refreshed. Sure. And that's where we see a correlation, too, in that aspect, because during the pandemic, we shelter workers didn't have the option to stay home. Right. right? We all we all all of us here at the table had to go to work. Oh. Um, and, uh, you know, and the additional stress on the people that we're trying to serve through this, through the pandemic and post pandemic has certainly been difficult on, on, on everybody. So, uh, we're, we're happy that we're all still in the game here. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if, I mean, just from a medical standpoint, if we look at, you know, like disease spread, right. Congregate living is like, I mean, that's like the worst we can think of in terms of trying to contain a disease. So, I mean, can you actually talk a little bit about what it was like in in a shelter system in the early days of the pandemic? I can, but we actually at no point got hit 
too terribly hard within the shelters. And I think that was a huge misconception. And actually, it, it exacerbated the stress on the population because there was almost this like idea that it came from homelessness and and that um, that would spread uh -huh. the disease more. But in fact, um, we didn't have uh, an insane amount of cases in, in either shelter, not in our emergency year-round shelter and not in our Code Blue. I mean, there was little pockets where a couple people had COVID at a time, um, but rarely could we actually trace it to any type of connectivity between the couple of individuals. Um, I think our team did a really good job of minimizing that. You know, we we were able to um, separate people, whether it be with rooms or motel rooms uh, for Code Blue, as soon as we knew someone had COVID, but it wasn't as bad as I think the general public thought it was inside of shelters. Um, and, well, I think we were prepared, right? We, we were we certainly prepared. We, we took advice from um, our county public health. We took advice from Saratoga Hospital and the clinics and things like that. We were prepared. We had the proper PPE to to fight this before it would hit us, you know, and we were, you know, everything from putting up screens or anything like that in, in Code Blue, those precautions were taken. So because, frankly, we were expecting to get whacked. Yeah, you but know? I think the misconception hurt the population because a lot of people went, you know, behind screens or behind phones, and that um, is extremely difficult for anyone experiencing homelessness to navigate. Mm -hmm. They might not have a phone, or more importantly, it's it's like Sam said, it's really important to build a relationship, and it's extremely hard to do that just over a phone or just over a Zoom call or a screen. Um, we had a lot of outreach teams stop doing outreach in the really early stages of COVID because they were worried that going to this population might result in them getting COVID. Um, I remember packing boxes of food and delivering it out of my Honda Civic, <laughs> um, just as an example, because uh, there wasn't many people on the streets. This is long before Sam. Um, so I, the misconception that congregate living it was the place you would get COVID, I think, hurt our volunteers. It hurt, you know, uh, the access to resources for the people who needed it the most hmm. did do you think that we saw a separation uh during those times between homeless uh able to access services um, i mean i think for all people yeah. uh, access to uh, certainly preventative and primary uh care services uh was deep, was uh challenged um we're starting to see that now in increasing rates of cancer diagnoses um, from all that, you know, three years of delayed screenings catches, catches up with you eventually. Um, and so we're seeing uh, high rates of breast cancer screening, colon cancer screening, et cetera. Mm. Um, moving um, more from that clinical role to the administrative role now as chief medical officer for the hospital, um, often asked about, uh, you know, why does the hospital get into uh, these things like community health center? Um, it's because it's who we are. We, we are here to serve the people of Saratoga County. Um, Frankly, we don't care uh, if you could pay or not. Uh, we often tell folks in the ED, we'll figure that out later. Let's take care of you right now. And that's shown in not just our investment in our community health center, um, but in our backstretch clinic, in our outreach work, um, in our expansive primary care network um, that extends throughout Saratoga County um, and into other counties. Um, and, and frankly, into our role as uh, Albany Mental Health System, uh, acknowledging that if it's something that we can't handle, then we'll get you to a doctor that can handle it somewhere within our system. Um, you know, the, of course, there's cost to delivering these care, to, to delivering this care, and and in part we uh, depend on our community benefactors. Um, the community health center is funded by Saratoga Hospital, but it's also funded by generous donations uh, from our um, community. Uh, the annual summer ga summer gala, uh, which supports the community health center, um, other fundraisers for the bachelor's clinics throughout the year. Um, so we are community supported, but we're here for the people uh, of our region. I, I could piggyback on that just to say that you know there. While there is a, a an alarming amount of folks experiencing homelessness in the county, there's also conversely a shocking uh, amount of ph philanthropy that I see in this county. You know, um, just for as an example, um, business for good, which uh, they they have, they're all throughout the county. I'm I'm not going to do a good job of speaking about what they do and you know I don't want to do them a disservice because they're amazing but they made a pretty sizable donation um, to the community health center specifically for the outreach work that we do um, so so we do exist um, partially through those donations but also through reimbursement um, 
a new change just I think it was October that I saw is that we can actually um, start billing for homeless outreach visits which is a new change um, under uh, Medicare and Medicaid so we're still navigating how we're going to make that happen you know what the exact criteria are to, to but it was just so exciting to see that I think it was our family medicine uh, residency director that sent me the email initially and I kind of jumped out of my chair when I saw it I said oh my gosh what you know we can actually bill for these visits which is just incredible because um, a lot of the up until now the the work that I've been doing it's not obviously not billable right I'm not gonna talk to someone for an hour in the woods and you know give them their bill you know um, you know it's because it's kind of like it, it defeats the purpose of me building a genuine relationship with them right um, but if we can actually get reimbursement from the from the insurers you know uh, for this it's it's a huge deal so you know what it's great to do good work but we also want to find a way to do it that is uh, sustainable financially which can be challenging sometimes but there's there's really good uh, folks making that happen Stephanie, I got a question for you. If you had a wish list when it comes to um, prevention or medical activities out in the field, I mean, what would that be? Would it be more of Sam's hours or, or what would you like to see? Lice kits. <laughs> Funny she, enough, she's, my, she, she's always asking me for lice kits. My code blue staff actually last night called me from the grocery store. It's her one day off, and of course, she's calling me from the grocery store, and she's like, oh, "I've got the Hannaford gift cards, and I'm buying lice kits." And I'm like, "Come on, <laughs> you have one evening, and that's what you're doing." <laughs> it's, the, it's the number one item. Yeah. yeah. So, um, no, we're actually good on lice kits. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it probably sounds silly, and it would, it wouldn't work in theory but like a van where a dentist and a doctor and a psychiatrist and a social worker and a therapist and a peer just could all fit and every all of their medical (laughs) supplies could fit and it would have to be the biggest van ever but if we're talking like my craziest wish list item that's that's where my dream i'll dream big (laughs) i feel like we could turn this into a like a cartoon like superheroes you know maybe that's how we would pay for it or or power rangers (laughs) you know i can i'm imagining like you know a team rolling up yeah we could do a reality tv show and and that's how it would pay for the van i think that's fantastic yeah (laughs) we actually did talk for in in reality we did we are talking about doing um like a mobile uh health clinic yeah which you know with our ceo jill this is something that she uh had in uh, her previous life in Baltimore. Yep. I mean, it is something we are looking at. Um, I'll drive the van. It's exciting. Sort of like a, it's like a, almost like a, a merging of, you know, uh, somewhere between the office and like an ambulance, you know, yeah. just kind of in the middle. Right. So. so we talked about barriers. Now we're talking about gaps. In yeah. Those, right. So this is a place where let's visit this a little bit. I mean, where, where else do you see gaps? Yeah. So that's, I mean, it's, it's so funny. Yeah. Now I'm just I got to get the image out of my head of the the cartoon superhero team, but so I can focus. I but, didn't expect someone but, to deliver on my wishes. But you know, but 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 if we have like a vehicle, you know, we it's easier for me to do things like you know, uh, delivering uh, immunizations to folks, right? You know, because I, I can show up in that vehicle and say, okay, you know, all right, guys, come on, and just knock it out, you know. Um, and it's easier for us to accomplish a lot of those uh, sort of preventive health measures, um, you know, doing things like phlebotomy and. Um, you know, things that I, I can do in the field now, but obviously are easier in a vehicle. Yeah. You talked about a shortage of primary care doctors, um, and that's one of the uh, reasons we started uh, Family Medicine Residency at Saratoga. Um, we figured, let's grow our own. <laughs> and and if you grow your own, that means they uh, come up in that Saratoga Hospital model. Um, so you know that the doctors that are going out there into the community uh, really understand uh, the community. Um, it's a new uh, program, and there are other opportunities to expand to other specialties um, where we also see that need. Um, so we're having discussions with our uh, academic partner, Albany Med, to, to look into other specialties we could expand our graduate medical education into. And those residents, they have, I think we already talked about it earlier in the podcast, but they have come out with me, um, you know, out to the woods and they their their eyes light up. They love it. You know, these, these doctors are passionate about what they're doing. And um, it's, you know, it's great to see them come out and, and do that with us. We had a great experience with them. They actually both spent time. I think there's, is there two, three? Well, there's there's six total for the six year. Total. Yeah. So uh, it's an 18 uh, resident program uh, once we have all three years filled. Yeah. We had two of them come to the shelter uh, on different days, not together. And each of them kind of took the same approach. They gathered whoever was home um, and had a little powwow in the yard. It was warmer um, and, and just kind of had 
a little circle of exchanging of words and uh, laughter and stories and barriers. And um, they just really made everyone feel very comfortable. So who's guiding that process? The uh, residency program? Mm -hmm. That falls under me now. Okay. Uh, yeah. right. um, so our, our pioneer, though, for, and, and, well, our pioneer was uh, Dr. Rich Valavina, uh, the uh, former C, uh, chief medical officer of Saratoga, who just recently retired. Happy to report that he's still actively involved in graduate medical education and is helping us steer the ship the right way. Um, That's awesome. Building this program over the next five years. Yeah. You, when we look at other gaps, I think, you know, primary care is certainly part of that. Um, and we had touched upon uh, behavioral health and uh, substance abuse treatment. Um, I think it's well acknowledged that there's gaps in that, uh, in those arenas as well. Uh, we do what we can at the community health center, um, but certainly um, they don't have the capacity to treat all those issues uh, that we see in, in our region. Um, but we do we do have a dedicated um, uh, addiction medicine service at the community health center exactly. through, through Dr. Zamer, which is great. So in addition to you know the the primary care doctors that can you know obviously write for things like buprenorphine, which is suboxone, um, you know we have a, a, a dedicated addiction medicine service, and we we actually have uh, walk-ins on Fridays. So today, before I came here, I uh, was covering covering down on the addiction medicine side. Excuse me, um, and. Uh, we had a patient walk in who, who needed help and uh, we were able to, you know, connect and get him what he needs. And I was able to prescribe for him until Monday when he can see uh, the doctor there. So we also do medication assisted therapy like Suboxone yeah. out of the emergency department. Um, and, um, you know, when I mentioned that the community health center can't um, accept all the volume, we, we partnered with New York Matters, um, which is a statewide um, MAT referral uh, program. What's nice about this is it's patient driven. Um, so if, the community health center is the most convenient option for them, then they will follow up with them. Um, but we see folks from all over the region. They may be from Schenectady, and it would be much easier for them to follow up with a clinic uh, near Ellis Hospital. And then we can make them an appointment with that hospital as well. Um, so we are looking at partnering uh, where it makes sense uh, to bring these services to patients. So it looks like we started on our wish list. We've got some work to do there. All right, so I was trying to get something for us to wrap up with a little bit there. And that's mm -hmm. where I was kind of going. With my at. wish list, but then they like had my wish list item. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I just love, I'm just picturing this action hero, you know, like like therapists. And yeah. One's workers. a dentist, one's yeah, a therapist. The that's the best. They can all have different outfits. You know, but like I, they I, kind of look like similar outfits. You know, I will just on that topic of like the, the different. Uh, specialties you know dental is so important you mentioned it and i just i have to put in a plug for dental because we we have dental services at the community health center and uh dental health is such an important part of um of your whole health and and primary care medicine and it's something that we're trying to advocate for and 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 push more and we're incorporating that into our um residency program you know um t making sure that uh you know, these uh, doctors are appreciating the value of um, having s sort of more detailed training when it comes to oral health than we typically think of. You know, we don't want it to be, oh, well, I can't go to my regular doctor about this because this is anything in this region of, of you know, the mouth. We're not going to touch that. It's just go to your dentist, go to your dentist, because there's a shortage there, a significant mm -hmm. shortage. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are a lot of things that can be done um, in primary care to to aid in um you know facilitating good oral health so we're, we're pushing that big time you know i i think for us at hospital one of the big acknowledgements is that we've realized the hospital is much more uh, than what happens in the four walls of the actual hospital uh, in fact this was the first year where we saw more patients outside of the hospital in our clinics than we did in the hospital itself uh -huh. um, and there's a recognition that the hospital of the future isn't inside those four walls uh, they'll always be there uh, for the sickest of the sick. When you're having that heart attack, when you're having that stroke, of course we'll be there for when you need us. Um, but the acknowledgement that that the hospital now extends far out uh, from the main campus uh, is our future. I, I just want to say that the, the collaboration between Saratoga Hospital, the clinic, and Shelters of Saratoga is something that we've enjoyed and that we're so proud of and we're so thankful of. Um, you know, I want to thank... Uh, uh, Rob for being here and Sam for being here and of course Stephanie and uh, but if there's anything that we've uh, you feel that we've missed or we any final comments love to hear them from from Rob or Sam the the collaboration is huge I mean without 
without that, I would basically be flying blind, so to speak, because a lot of these patients, I would not know how to approach them had it not been for the um, model that I was shown from the case managers and case workers through your agency. So, I, I mean, I knew that I wanted to help people in this population, but I really had no idea how to start it. Um, so the fact that I'm able to continue that relationship um, and that allows me to get those folks into the clinic where I can take care of them or just continue to see them where they're at um, and take care of them that way. But but being able to talk and, and share our information is just... I mean, I feel like I talk about it over and over again, but it's just, it's invaluable. You know, being able to work together is, is what makes this work. And I would echo that on the hospital side. Um, you know, we had mentioned that collaboration that happens with our care managers um, uh, in the house and with the uh, shelters of Saratoga. Um, and we're really looking to broaden that relationship so that, uh, you know, folks are on a first name basis, one phone call away. Um, hey, I have your patient here from shelters and vice versa. Um, so that we really are treating uh, the whole person, right? Um, you know, as I mentioned, the hospital's there to treat every medical need that we possibly could, um, but we can't do it alone. And we rely on our partners like Shelters of Saratoga to uh, treat the whole person. Sure. And, you know, uh, like I said earlier in the podcast, um, to, to show up in that meeting at the hospital and have, you know, 30, 40, 50 people engaged in listening and making sure that we all understand each other and how we can work together better showed me uh, that that you were all invested in this and that's really important to us to do our work and because we can't do it without you and we really appreciate both of you thank you very much thank you this was great thank you are we done i'll be waiting on the van okay i just want, <laughs> i just want to see stephanie in her in her super person <laughs> uniform yeah, do I get a uniform if I'm just the driver, not a medical professional? Yeah, you're, you're just the driver, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Crossroads. Healthcare for the homeless is such an important factor for any individual walking the path to independence. Sometimes that can be taken for granted. We wanted to share with you the critical role Saratoga Hospital, the Community Health Center, and Shelters of Saratoga play together to take on this challenge. And we want to thank Saratoga Hospital and the Community Health Center for all of their good work. We couldn't do it without you. Crossroads is produced by Shelters of Saratoga, a nonprofit human services agency serving the greater Saratoga area. Our mission is to transform the lives of our neighbors facing homelessness with support services, safe shelter, and a path to independence. Your support keeps our mission alive. Find out more about how you can help at sheltersofsaratoga.org.